If you're ready to study your Bibles, I would like for you to turn to Mark 1. And then I also would like for you to kind of hold a finger in Matthew 4. Uh, As you're turning to both pages, I would like to frame up our time. We're studying through the gospel according to Mark under the series name On the Road with Jesus. And we as a church are together journeying with the Lord, right? Growing in our knowledge and our affection uh, in him and and, and together as we study this book. uh, And and just like some, some more context laying down, like Mark's gospel, first gospel written and it was uh, written using the accounts of Peter's life. Peter was a sort of father figure in the ministry to, to Mark, and with his approval and his blessing, Mark publishes this new literary genre of a gospel that would in turn be the influence for Matthew and Luke's uh, gospels. And so Mark's writing style is steeped in Old Testament writings. He often makes callbacks to the prophets which we've already seen in just 11 verses uh, carrying the themes and word usages found in the Torah, connecting the readers to the entrance of the Messiah while grounding this work in the tradition. It's really wonderful writing. And if you've been reading at home, you'll know that Mark is a book that moves ever so fast. It, it moves quickly through the events of the life of Christ. And as we mentioned last week, he does not cruise down the street as you would a a drive-through zoo, careful not to miss any little thing. Instead, he shoots you out into the important events that help us see Jesus as the perfect son of God and the prophesied king who rules like a shepherd. Mark wants to communicate to his readers the persecuted Christian church in Rome, and by extension us, that Jesus is a different kind of king than what we're used to seeing. Mark communicates, hey, you know of earthly kings. You know of rulers and emperors, presidents and elected officials, people who govern. You know about them and how they work, but I'm writing to tell you about the king of kings, the men above men. And, and this king, see, or, or your officials, the one that you are familiar with, you, they only govern a, a section of his world. But this king, our king, is different than them. He is not like the ones we know here on, on earth. And so a question that we would ask and the readers of this letter at the original time would ask is, well, how? And Mark begins his gospel with a two-part prologue. The first part is actually not about King Jesus. It's about John the baptizer, the forerunner, the herald of the king. John is out in the wilderness preaching about the coming of the Messiah and baptizing people with the baptism of repentance. Well, time stops when the embodiment of John's sermons shows up to be baptized by him. Jesus tells John, this must be done to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, what Jesus is saying to John is, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and service to my people looks means that I am a representative 
for them. So I have to do this. I have to be baptized by you because in order for me to be a perfect sacrifice, in order for me to be a perfect representative, I have to do the work for them. Family, I tell you this morning that there is a leader that you can put your trust in. A leader who keeps his word. I know of a king who gives you what other kings cannot. Jesus, he is going to give you his righteousness, so he's going to give you his baptism. If Jesus is going to give you his life, he's going to give you his works. If Jesus is going to give you himself, he's going to give you the spirit that empowered him to empower us. The second part of the prologue is where we make our study this morning. Immediately following his baptism, Jesus is driven to the wilderness to fast and to meditate on God's spoken word. But this quickly becomes a place of battle. As Satan unleashes an onslaught of temptations against Jesus. We know that Jesus was there 40 days, but all we have is three recorded temptations. But every scholar and every historian and every theologian would agree that Jesus was tempted far more than just the three that we have before us. But our text teaches us as we examine these three that if our Lord was tempted, surely will we. If it came for him, it'll come for us. But family, there is encouragement here because Jesus gets the victory. Jesus wins in these battles. He does not lose. And because he wins, it means that his children have victory over temptations too. But even so, we will be tried. And if not careful, we could be led astray. So we could find ourselves in prolonged seasons of despair, prolonged seasons of difficulty, because we did not rest in the victory That Jesus laid down for us. So I've titled our time this morning, Christ's Victory for Our Battles. And I have three observations for us in this text, and then I'll be out of your way. The first is that because Christ got the victory, we are now equipped to fight. And because we are equipped to fight, we can run at God's pace. And we know, lastly, The trials are trying, but temporary. Those are our three points of emphasis this morning. Let's read, let's pray, and see what the Lord has for us. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Turn to Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and sent him on the pinnacle of the temple 
and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and you and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came And we're ministering to him. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, you are holy and just. The whole earth sings your praises. The sun declares your glory. The weather shouts your care. The birds, they sing your song. God, we listen, as we listen to your word, Would you gift me as a communicator with clarity of speech and thought and gift the congregation as hearers with attentiveness, wisdom, and grace for my errors. But may you gift us both together with the encouragement of your love. God be with us this morning as we celebrate the good news of your son Jesus. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Last year, almost all of us faced quarantining in home for months and months. And as a society, we began the great race to find the next piece of binge-worthy content. We were stuck at home, so, I mean, we couldn't even grocery shop for too long or go to parks or do anything constructive that would help us pass the time. And so we scoured the internet and searched every streaming platform there is to find the next best way. One of the most critically acclaimed shows that came out of that was Netflix's miniseries, The Queen's Gambit. The Queen's Gambit is a show, a fictional story, set in the 50s and 60s following the drama around Beth Harmon, an orphan chess prodigy who became the queen of chess. Beth is a gifted child who grew into adulthood, clinging to the game for life. It was an escape from the tragedy that followed her and that sometimes she invited on herself. Beth was a ruthless chess player, studying all day and all night. She would rigorously study her opponents. She would watch all their games. She would read their interviews and read their books and excerpts and magazines and in the papers. She she was obsessed with every opponent she had. And she would literally go to sleep and replay each of their games move for move to find a strategy. She knew her opponent's strengths, their weaknesses. She knew what made them tick. She knew how their aggression would play out. She knew what frustration would look like on them. She knew their contingencies. That was her strategy. Meticulous planning. But where the show excels is not highlighting Beth's victories, but her defeats. Surely someone so confident in how they prep for opponents, 
how they aptly respond to shortcomings in other peoples would be able to see her own flaws within herself. No, Beth was often unable to win in her personal battles, submitting to her deficiencies and her vices. Beth loses herself in ways her hardest work and her best intentions cannot save her from. I use this illustration because it resonates with us in a few ways. One, you'll notice that Beth is really no different from us in this regard. Though none of us are child prodigies at chess that I'm aware of. Trisha's great at tennis, apparently. We all, we, <laughs> we all have this battleground that we play in. We all have these weaknesses and battles that we have and these seasons of life that come and go. However, many of us do operate under the assumption like Beth that our hardest work or our best intentions could get us out of those seasons of temptations and flaws and seasons of uh, hardship and trial. Some of us believe that this is sufficient enough for our victory. You and I both want to overcome temptations, but is it possible, family, that we do not know with whom we are battling against? Our enemy is skilled. Our enemy is ruthless. Our enemy has studied very meticulously the rhythms, our our, our rhythms, our weaknesses, our strengths, our mental capabilities, everything about us. And our enemy is bent on our destruction so much so that his desire to defeat you has been in the works since before you were born. Before you were you, he has been after you. And even now knows you better than you know yourself. He's trying to destroy you since your first parents walked this earth. And those good intentions, that hardworkingness to walk correctly are no match for even the corruption of our flesh, much less the cunning of our enemy. If I could refer back to the illustration, it would seem like you and I are at the other side of the table to Beth Harmon. And in this matter, it's not a question of if we'll lose. It's a matter of when. But family, this good news that I'm about to share with you is true. We have a king who, when it was time for us to do battle does not dispassionately sit away and threatens us to victory. No, we have a king who got off his throne and entered the battlefield himself and made a way for us to receive victory. Our king sees the needs of his people and fulfills those needs. Praise God that we have a servant king and a warrior king like Jesus. But before we can examine our verses today, I would like for us to study something important. As we climb the mountain of this text and attempt to reach its peak, we need to make sure that our footing is sure. When Jesus comes, or in this text rather, two important doctrines of our faith are being realized. They're being expressed. When Jesus comes out of the water, the heavens crack open and the spirit descends upon him and the pronouncement of Jesus' sonship is made by God the Father for all to hear. This is the first time God has audibly spoken in 300 years. 
and this beautiful display of Trinitarian work. The Father declaring the work of the Son, the Spirit descending from heaven to empower him. All three persons of the Godhead simultaneously working in this moment. The Father, Son, and the Spirit are not interchangeable. As we read in verses 9 through 11 of Mark 1, all three are doing their work. All three are one God operating in their persons. Another important note we must make is regarding the Son. Jesus was indeed 100% God and 100% man. He is both divine and human. The heresy, the, the falseness that we could accidentally slip into here, is that everything that Jesus is about to undergo from this point on is done in his divinity. It's not. It is Jesus' humanity being baptized. His humanity being empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's divinity keeping everything together. At the same time that Jesus is being baptized in his humanity, his divinity is providing the very air for everyone to breathe. He is both being baptized by John and pumping air into his lungs. His, in his divinity, the trees are shooting, the grass is growing, and the water is flowing. But in his humanity, he is being inaugurated for ministry. So we can see the Trinity and the hypostatic union, that God is fully man, or that Jesus is fully man and fully God. Now that we have some theological footing, let's examine our first emphasis, that we are equipped to fight. Immediately after the baptism, Jesus is driven away deeper into the wilderness. He is compelled with a sense of urgency by the Spirit to undergo the crucible of the wilderness for 40 days. The same wilderness that his ancestors spent 40 years wandering. However, as they wandered in their rebellion, the Lord provided for them, the Israelites. They had food, they had water, they had shade, they had God's prophets and Moses. They had community, they had each other, they had fellowship, and still they failed their tests. Jesus is in this same place, a place that represents the shortcomings of his lineage. A place that represents error and sin. But unlike them, he would be victorious here. But this is not only the fulfillment that Jesus is doing. Adam and Eve were tested too. Not in the desert, but in a garden. They were in harmony with the wildlife, able to eat and drink as much as they pleased, living in fellowship with God and each other. They only had one rule, from this tree do not eat. And that was it. And that's where their testing took place. Adam and Eve failed. And because they failed, humanity would always fail. That is until now. Jesus enters the wilderness at the bottom of the human experience. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was in danger, it says the wild beasts roamed around him. And he was alone. 
Everything opposite of Adam and Eve. Everything opposite of the Israelites. See, they wandered the wilderness. But they kept in their rebelliousness. rebelliousness. Jesus wanders it in great need, but in obedience. However, let us not minimize in our minds how great his needs were. He was in bad shape. And it is here that Satan appears to him. Can't you relate? Can't you relate? Christ had just been baptized. This beautiful display of Trinitarian power, this empowerment of the Holy Spirit had just happened. This was a high moment. Can't you relate to having a high and immediately experiencing the fall? For you, this could be Waking up, not by your power, but by God's. Coming here, not by your grace, but by God's. Enjoying the fellowship of the saints here, you are not alone. And hearing the encouragement of your brothers and sisters here, sing, enjoying the mysterious blessing of singing God's praises communally. Hearing the proclamation of his word, submitting to the discipleship of your leaders, you are experiencing now blessing and high. But when you go home, you've experienced the fall before, right? Can't you relate to that? Like Jesus, you too will experience the fragility of your flesh. And the temptations of the enemy, even after your times of sweetest fellowship with God, after the happiest enjoyment of taking his communion, after the sealing of the spirit in your hearts, you must expect to be tempted by the devil. We mustn't believe that in our lives all will be sweetness. Spurgeon writes, you have to fight the good fight of faith. And your great adversary will not be slow to begin the encounter. You are a pilgrim in a strange land, so you must expect to find rough places on the road to heaven. Yet since you are so much weaker than your master was, you will do well to pray the prayer he he taught to his disciples. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So church, immediately we learn our battles will be had. As Christ fought, so will we. Look at verse 2 of Matthew. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. God's plan is the redemption of his people by offering his son's life perfect. The sacrifice of Jesus must be perfect. God has just pronounced Jesus for everyone to hear as his son and Jesus, knowing that he is to fulfill all righteousness, is being led to fast in the wilderness. And Satan's temptation here is to immediately question the legitimacy of God's word, to challenge the very identity of Jesus. Satan is focused on getting to Jesus to give in to just doubting ever so slightly that he is who his father says he is. If I could make just a side 
application to this. Family, never underestimate the power of the names you call your children. Even in good fun, you may label a child something he is not. As your pastor, I'm dying on this hill. That's the spiritual principle of naming something over someone carries its physical manifestation. But that's another conversation for another chapter of Mark. Satan's words to Jesus here are careful, measured, cunning. Jesus has had this spiritual high and is now being brought low in his humanity by fasting. The opportunism of Satan to say, if you are the son of God. Just moments ago, it was declared by God, this is my son. And Satan's first words to Jesus are, if you're the son of God. I know you're hungry. Turn these rocks to bread so that you can eat. And Satan is not only questioning Jesus' sonship, he's Praying on Jesus' human weakness, which is in turn imposing on his mission to be a servant king. Satan's desire is for Jesus to ruin it all by making Jesus self-serving. The sin isn't in the bread. He's not trying to get Jesus to eat. He's trying to get Jesus' eyes off God. To get his mind away from his word. Satan is using distraction. Jesus has this one thing. This one thing ringing in his mind during his fast. You are my son with who I am well pleased. And C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. Screw tape is a older adversary who is writing a letter to a younger adversary in training. And he tells him, the older to the younger, tells him of this one temptation he was involved in. His victim was reading a book that prompted him to think about God. Before I knew where I was, Screwtape says, I saw my 20 years work beginning to totter. He tells this younger adversary that what he didn't do was launch an assault on, the, on, on God's existence. He didn't get him to doubt that God was real or any of that. He didn't assault him with lustful distractions. He didn't do any of that. All he did was remind the man that it was lunchtime. And he put the book down and went out the door for lunch and didn't continue his thought. Lewis would often say in screw tape letters, That distraction is more an effective technique than denial. Family, I'll warn you now, beware of the distractions in this life. You may not be fasting at the moment, but you have other weaknesses that could be preyed upon. And not necessarily to get you to the point of unbelief, though that can be a place of contention for you, but to distract you for thinking on Jesus. Living on his mission meditating on his word, living your life to the glory and praise of him. Our enemy wants to take what God has declared over us and cast a doubt on it. He will try to put question marks where God has put periods and exclamation points. I was a stay-at-home dad. I homeschooled and discipled my children 
for the last two years. Tiredness was the distraction for me. Tiredness and me time. Now, I'm not saying these things are bad. I'm not saying they are not needed. They are essential. However, I found myself saying consistently, ah, they'll be all right. Boys will be boys. As a way not to engage in my mission. To not enter the space I was called to. I failed to remember constantly was that these moments, these battles were already won for me. I had the power to overcome them, but I was too distracted. See, Jesus wasn't in that wilderness for himself. Jesus wasn't fasting for himself. He was doing it all for you and for me. He was uncomfortable. He was going hungry. He was overcoming the temptation to serve himself for you and for me. So that we may be empowered to be selfless in him. So that the pronouncement of his sonship can be over us. Jesus responds to Satan's tempting with more of God's word. He quotes Deuteronomy. Matthew 4.4, Jesus replies, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8.2, which says, And you shall remember the whole way the Lord, your God, has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. The context of this verse is crucial to understanding Jesus' point in quoting it. Moses was reminding the Israelites That God put them in the wilderness. The same one that Jesus is at now. After the exodus from Egypt. Though they, the Israelites, were thirsty, God had given them provisions. Jesus is not getting the provisions of manna and water like the Israelites did. But he has the power to do so. Think on this. Jesus is at the place of testing for his ancestors Who received provisions that they asked for? The temptation here to break his fast in the place where God provided breakfast in the past is incredible, right? Jesus is instead feasting on God's word and of his promises of water and bread. It's a fast is to have your body undergo a physical need that points you to your spiritual need. Jesus was fasting from physical bread to pursue a spiritual one. When Satan came to tempt Jesus with a physical need, Jesus countered saying that the spiritual one was already being satisfied enough. Jesus meditated on God's word and it was his sword in battle. Oh, church, may the word of God Be always on your lips. 
Because it is the sharpest sword. When the enemy tries to hinder you, you swing your sword at him. When Satan calls you to question your sonship or your daughterhood in him, you remember Romans 8, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You swing your sword when Satan comes tempting you to live selfishly. You remember Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than your you swing your sword when Satan comes for your children. You remember Psalm 127 that they are a gift from the Lord, that they are your reward and your arrows, and that you are blessed when you stand at the gate to speak to the enemy, for you have children. You swing your sword. And when Satan comes to bring you discord between your brothers and your sisters in the faith, you remember 1 Peter. Have unity in mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Church, you swing your sword. Satan was not done. Matthew 4, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. Notice the quotations end, and he says, and, and then the quotations begin, on their hands will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. While trying to challenge Jesus' identity, Satan also says, Throw yourself off this building and command the angels to come get you because here's what Psalm 91 says. That's the scripture Satan is quoting. It's interesting that Satan would bring Jesus into the city to be atop of the temple like this. Historians say that Jesus must have been 300 feet high. Jumping from this height landing unharmed, would not have only given Jesus an immediate and enormous amount of followers. It would have jump-started his ministry. Taking Satan up on this offer would have saved for Jesus a lot of heartbreak, a lot of the grind of ministry, a lot of the work if he could bring in his ministry with a very, very public miracle like this. Satan is tempting Jesus with what is most tempting to him, as Kent Hughes writes. The devil tempts our Lord with what must have been most tempting to him. That's why he toys with and twists the words of God in each and every temptation. That's why he tempts Jesus not with obvious evils. He takes Jesus to the temple pinnacle, God's holy place. He quotes the Bible, God's holy word, and says, Beloved son, does God really love you? God's holy provision. Yet with each false arrow, the son of God puts up his shield of faith. It is written, it is written, it is written. And this is for us too. Two remarkable themes in our cultural moment today are social approval by way of social media. A form of social interaction that contains very little to none relational interaction. An instant gratification by way of entertainment services. Immediate, right now, the giving of we want. 
We don't want commercials because it means we wait. We don't want weekly shows because we want to binge. We don't want to wait for the next big things. We want platforms to give us countless hours of content so that we can satisfy the silence with something else. Our cultural moment is breeding in us a desire for quick, easy satisfaction. A desire to want the victory without the battle. To want retirement without the work. We want the meal, but we don't want to cook it. But if we look to Christ who endured the cross, endured the suffering, endured the disappointments, endured the emotional toll, endured the inconveniences, the work, when he was tempted to take a shortcut, he stayed the course. Let us see Jesus and be so committed to his glory that when Satan tempts us with shortcuts, we remember that Christ took none for us. And that he spared nothing to bring us home. Let's remember the words of Paul. That we would gladly spend to be spent. Satan misquotes Psalm 91 in order to convince Jesus to give in. But Jesus answers Satan misquote with a true one. He quotes Deuteronomy again. 6.16 You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now this Deuteronomy quote was Moses referencing Exodus 17 when God's people were roaming the wilderness again. They were frustrated because they reached a new place and there was nothing to drink in this new place. They had provisions, they had been provided provisions by God before. At every camp they stopped, at every city, or, or not really city, but place in the wilderness that they stayed at. God always provided something, be it shade, be it bread, be it water. But they reached this new place and immediately saw that there was no water there and began to complain about their thirst. And Moses tells them, you've been provided for this whole time, chill out. He says, relax, lest you test God. But the people didn't want to wait. They didn't want to wait on God to supply their needs at his timing. They complained and nagged at Moses over and over and over, and they put God to the test. Jesus quoting this scripture is effectively telling Satan, I'm in the wilderness like they were. Only they failed God and tested him. I know how that story ends. I was there. I don't have to test my father to see his promises come true. I don't have to question his planning to see the fruit grow. I don't have to jump when my father says not to yet. My confidence is in the plan of God. Thus, my desires are to see whatever is the outcome of his work. I don't need people to flock to me. In God's plan, I'll have more than just these people. Maybe jumping from here makes me king of them, but in God's plan, I'm king overall. Family, don't test God. He has got you, and he will keep you, and his faithfulness is unwavering and sure. Don't be like the Israelites who were frustrated with their leadership because they were impatient with God. Don't be like the Israelites who tried to force God's hand because they couldn't wait for the promises to be accomplished. Notice the season you are in and wait upon the Lord. And when the enemy comes to tempt you with nonsense, 
you run your race at your pace and swing your sword. Look to verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Family, my last point is that trials are trying, but they are only temporary. I want to point out both the object Satan is tempting Jesus with and the length of time in which this temptation happened. This was a quick one. For this temptation, Christ would not have any more of this talk. Satan says, if you bow down to me, I can give you all the kingdoms of this earth. Satan is offering Jesus a plan that sounds like God's plan. An outcome that only sounds like the one God already has in store. It's to call in question again the very words of God. But Jesus says, I already run these earthly kingdoms. And if I truly wanted them, if I truly wanted an entire nation, an entire state, an entire continent to have as my followers, I would have it. Family, this is the lie of Christian nationalism. They believe that God has called one to be a patriot Christian or an American evangelical. But Jesus never came to save a nation. He came to save the nations. Jesus never came to adopt a kingdom. He came to establish his own. Jesus doesn't want your nationalism. He doesn't want your patriotism. Jesus didn't come for man's kingdom. He came to build his own using man. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to have this, Satan. If I wanted those kingdoms, I'd have them. But my kingdom trumps all kingdoms here. Family, you have a king who has already established his kingdom here. And it's not America. And it's not Jerusalem. But it is in America. And it is in Jerusalem. And Africa. And Europe. And Asia. And Australia. It is, it is in Christ establishing his kingdom here with his people. And he is inviting you who do not believe to take up a, not a flag of any nation here, but a cross. A cross like he did. To live not to the glory of anything other than his own. Jesus ends the whole matter at once. Be gone, Satan. Family, temptations are tough, but they're temporary. Forty days Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted. However, the Israelites were there for 40 years. May this humbly show us what rebellion and giving in to temptations would do. And Jesus never gave an inch. Though he was tempted in his humanity, he was also victorious in it. Family, you can rest in that. Christ's victory over Satan's temptations was for your battles today. We know how the story ends. Satan has been thwarted. He can never take the children of God. Instead, he will be used as a tool for the purposes of God. Oh, that's good. God will use his tests to strengthen, to strengthen the faith of those that Satan tries to ensnare. And he will never achieve to do it. God will not allow Satan to capture his children 
again. For those who are in Christ, you are hidden in him forever. You are eternally sealed by clinging to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, our warrior king who fought with Satan and trampled him in the wilderness. There will be a day when he will return to cast him away forever. Family, God did not leave us defenseless here. Stand firm in his word, just as Jesus did, setting the example for us. I'll close with this. Matthew 4, verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Once Satan flees, the angels come down and they minister to him. It was they who supplied Christ with every physical need of water and food and bread. And now that his fast was over and his test has passed, this shows us further that he won in his humanity. He needed to eat and drink lest he perish. The victory that he had in the wilderness, all of heaven knew the significance of. This was not just a battle. It was a cosmic battle. Before Christ, we had a representative who failed us. Adam wasn't tested in the wilderness. He was tested in the garden and failed. But Jesus is the new Adam. He is not reestablishing a garden, but a kingdom. In the garden, we became sinners. But in this city, in this kingdom, we become sons, daughters, heirs, righteous. One final encouragement. At the same time Mark wrote this gospel, Paul was writing a letter to the Romans. He says, Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Because Adam sinned, our first representative, that pronouncement now resides over us. We are dead in the trespasses we have because we have all sinned. We are born into a reality that demands our eternal separation from God. Adam failed us in the garden, but God did not allow this to be the final word over you. Paul later says in verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin is increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as, in, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Family, when temptations roll your way and sin knocks on your door, know that Christ stood before you. You are not in Adam, you are in him. Adam did not give you the tools to fight, but Christ did. Adam did not exemplify running at God's race, but Christ did. Adam made the trials last, 
for all of humanity's time. But in Christ, trials are trying, but they're temporary. Know, church, that even if you succumb to the wickedness of your temptations, there is still grace for you at the cross. Know that when you experience the taste of defeat, it is only a taste and never the whole. You are in victory because Christ was victorious for you. And he was victorious so that he could lay down his sinless life for you. God looks at you today, who you who believe in his son, not with the credit of your own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ, which your faith in him has made for you. Be encouraged, be strengthened, repent for the errors, be strong in the tests, and give all glory to Christ alone. Would you stand with me for communion? If you have not placed your faith in this Jesus who came to serve you and fight for you, then what we are about to do carries no significance to you. Not yet, at least. You might say to me, even though I am not of your faith, I have a sense of morals. I have a sense of right and wrong. You are right. You don't, have a, you don't have to be a Christian to be tempted into wrongdoing. You surely have been tempted to do something wrong before. Being a Christian will not spare you of temptations. You just heard me yell at you about how Jesus was tempted for 40 days. But see, when you are tempted, there is no consequence for you other than what you experience in this world your victories are always temporary and your defeats are eternal it is not so with us though in christ we have access to his victory access by the power of the holy spirit to overcome temptations to the glory of god and our good our temptations are temporary but our victories because of him are eternal because they came at a great cost. I know a king you can trust in. A king who came to serve you and give his life as a ransom for you. A king who sympathizes with you. Who knows what it's like to suffer and to be tried. Who lived and knows the realities of this world's moments. A king who was hungry and thirsty alone and yet conquered so that you don't have to. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin.